This episode of Biscuits and Jam is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to another episode of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living Magazine. My guest today has been a farmhand, a butcher, and a forklift operator. But the creative culture of Muscle Shoals, as well as his passion for songwriting, propelled him to music's biggest stage. I'm like everybody else that sang in their hairbrush in the mirror and dreamed of being on the Grammys, but I never really thought that it would happen. John Paul White grew up on the northern side of the Tennessee-Alabama border. As he began performing in bands in high school, he was soon making friendships with David Hood, Spooner Oldham, and other Muscle Shoals legends. In 2011, John Paul's career exploded along with musical partner Joy Williams, together known as the Civil Wars, as they released their debut album, Barton Hollow, winning two Grammys. Since the duo split up in 2014, John Paul has been busy with his own record label, Single Lock, and his most recent album, The Hurting Kind, which came out last year. During our discussion, he spoke to me about how times were simpler, but not necessarily better when he was growing up. And that exact feeling comes through on his song, The Good Old Days. In the lyrics, John Paul questions whether the benefit of getting things back to how they used to be is just wishful thinking. Today, we'll hear about John Paul's various jobs on his family's chicken farm as a teenager. And it was it was probably the hardest job I ever had, moving my way up the ladder of being the guy that throws the bales up on the trailer to the guy that actually stacks the bales to the guy driving the tractor pulling the trailer. I sound so country right now talking about all this. Plus, his mom's pepper steak, a timely collaboration with Roseanne Cash, and more on episode 11 of Biscuits and Jam. John Paul White, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. It's great to be here. So tell me a little bit about growing up in Loretto, Tennessee. And am I saying that right? You are not. You're actually, you're saying it properly. You're saying it the way it probably should be <laughs> pronounced. But I know immediately you're not from there. <laughs> uh, it's uh, anybody there would pronounce it Loretta, like Loretta Lynn. It's it's yeah. all Loretta, Tennessee. And and it's funny to hear anybody else pronounce it. And it always makes me long for home as well. So tell me a little bit about it. It's outside of Florence, Alabama, right? Yeah, the Shoals is Florence, Muscle Shoals, Tuscumbia, Sheffield, all it's the quad cities are smashed up on the Tennessee River here in North Alabama in the northwest corner, almost in Mississippi, almost in Tennessee. And Loretta, Tennessee is just across the state line. But in a lot of ways, it could have been a million miles away because we didn't come down to the shoals that often. If we needed to go to the city, we went up to Lawrenceburg, Tennessee and could get whatever we had to. If we wanted to go to the mall, you went to, you <laughs> went to Florence. And so I've, I'm really 
don't know what I'm, where my native soil is. I was born here in the Shoals and lived here till grade school and then moved up to Loretta. But that, you know, that volunteer Crimson Tide hate, I'm of all fans, so that that's deep-seated in there. So, Oh, God bless you. That's me, too. So, <laughs> Oh, well, I, I knew I loved you, but I didn't know how deeply. My blood runs orange. Yeah, yeah, well, mine does, too, but my skin is pretty thick, too. Uh, there, there, was, there was a lot more to crow about when we were younger. <laughs> right. Well, so uh, you grew up on a farm, is that right? Yeah, chicken farm. So tell me what that was like. Well, uh, I'm not sure how often I've ever even talked about this. Um, it was a game farm. I worked as a seed cleaner. Fescue and grass seed and stuff like that would come in from farmers would would harvest it and bring it in in, in huge trucks, and then they'd dump it into our cleaner, which is basically just a big sieve that would vibrate and had different filters and it would, you know, get the chaff out of it. How old are you at this point? Uh, 16. Yeah. Wow. 16. And it was probably the hardest job I ever had. We not only did that, we sold feed and seed to local farmers. So we were always loading trucks and, and massive gardens. So I was always planting or picking okra, corn, I sound so country right now talking about all this uh, and then hauling hay and moving my way up the ladder of being the guy that throws the bales up on the trailer to the guy that actually stacks the bales to the guy driving the tractor, pulling the trailer. And, it was hard work. Yeah, but it was fun. I mean, I, I grumbled about it. I'm, I'm sure it just seemed like so much simpler so much more innocent time and and I think that's what most of us long for is not necessarily going back to the good old days is going back to when we didn't know about all the troubles of the world we were just ignorant of it and we didn't have the the bills to pay all the things that we are encumbered with now those are blissful times but I also know it was you know really hard times for a lot of the world and i just didn't know it so uh john paul who was the cook in your family definitely my mom my mom is a lot like my wife in that she was she was more of an artist with the way she cooked there was no recipes or you know tablespoon of this teaspoon of that which is what i need i'm a great sous chef you know i can follow instructions like no man. But if I don't have it words on the page, I'm just completely lost. And my wife just throws stuff around and here it is. And it's fantastic. And I'm like, well, how'd you make that? I don't, I don't know. And I'd try to recreate it and fail miserably. That was my mom. And she learned it from her mom. You know, they're all German Catholics. Loretta is a predominantly German Catholic community. And I grew up thinking everybody was German Catholic and little <laughs> did I know that was not true. Um, but they did not cook anything German. There was, there was no German recipes. What were some of the dishes that you remember the most? My favorite thing my mom ever made 
uh, and it, to me, it seemed very sophisticated, and I know differently now. And that is not <laughs> sliding this dish at all, but it was pepper steak. It was probably round steak that she would cut up in really thin strips, and then peppers and onions and tomatoes, and it would all cook in the crock pot for most of the day. And then you put it over rice, and I still, my mouth waters thinking about it. It was, it was just a very simple dish, but my mom always knew it was my favorite. And to this day, I bet if I asked her, she would be able to remember that. So every birthday, you know, every occasion, every celebratory meal, you probably have pepper steak. <laughs> I love it. But, but like, you know, a lot of chicken, obviously, on the chicken farm, a lot of fried chicken. We had some bottomland on the 30 acres that flooded. Blue Water Creek ran at the base of our property. And so the bottom seven or eight acres were fairly unusable for us, for chickens, but you could put cows on them. And so we had a neighbor that would put cows on it and had just enough high land that they could escape if the, if the banks of the Blue Water flooded, they'd move to high ground. So we let him have it, use it for free year round, and he would give us one cow a year and have it processed however we wanted at Pete's Meat Market, which was just down the road and was a future place of employment for me when I learned to be a butcher. But at the time, we were very fortunate to have a huge garden of everything, squash, potatoes, corn, strawberries, watermelon, okra, all that. But then we had a deep freeze full of stew meat and ground beef and then but then ribeyes and t-bones and stuff and so i ate stuff that people much more affluent than we were uh, i probably had better stuff on the table than they did What did, uh, what did holidays look like for you guys? Well, my mom is one of 14 kids. Wow. So holidays <laughs> were ridiculous. Uh, they all went to the Navy. All the boys went to the Navy, every one of them. But they all, almost all of them came back. And so every Christmas and Thanksgiving, we'd go to grandma's little four-room house and there'd literally be 120, 130 people. Oh, my God. And that was only two generations. That was grandma, her 14 kids, and their kids. And that was it. Because every family had at least four, just about. Some had six, some had eight. It was awesome. That's a lot of food. That's a lot of food to make. Sure. And, and she took on a lot of that. Grandma did, but of course... All the kids, it was basically covered dish. Everybody brought food. And, and you knew who the cooks were and who they weren't. I might be near mom and I'd be like, okay, so what Aunt Roseanne make? You know, because I want that. You know? And I won't name any names now because they're probably going to watch this. But there'd be certain ones that'd be like, oh, yeah, there's not a lot of room on my plate. I'll just skip that one. You know, that kind of thing. But. Almost all of them just 
could crush it. It was probably a little competitive. Oh, heck yeah. Because a lot of the kids wouldn't even pay attention to who made what. But you'd hear them all raving, like, dude, did you have that strawberry cake? Then people would be able to crow. <laughs> That's real. It's still that way. Much more to come with John Paul White after the break. This episode of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, this slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and we're talking with John Paul White. John Paul, I want to move to music a little bit and um, just tell me about some of your early experiences with music and what was being played in your house. My dad was a country music uh, aficionado, and my mom was a show tunes, Broadway, West Side Story, you know, but also soundtrack, Dr. Zhivago, stuff like that. And most of the music we heard was probably in the car, you know, AM radio, FM radio, um, country music and pop music. And uh, always country with dad, Merle and Johnny Cash, but then the older, you know, Bob Wills and Tex Ritter and stuff like that. He, he loved all that too. Was there uh, was there an early song or artist that really kind of turned your head around? There were two. Merle Haggard for one, because I, w- I would venture to say it's my dad's favorite artist. And Merle could do it all. You know, he could outright most. He could play, you know, he could actually play his guitar. He wasn't just holding it like George Strait or Alan Jackson or somebody like that. He would take a solo. Um, he sang like a bird and he's a great entertainer and he would, you know, go on the variety shows and do impressions. It was like, God, this guy can do everything. And then the flip side of that would be, um, there's actually three, but the second one would be Johnny Cash who wrote some of his stuff. Most of it, he didn't, he was not, you know, classically a great singer, quote unquote, but you felt every word that came out of him. You believed every single thing, every emotion that he gave you. You believed it like it was his last story. And so I took equal measures of those things, but then uh, Patsy Klein, And mm. she was the elegant side of it. You know, she and Jim Reeves both showed me a more sophisticated side to where I came from. And what I grew up around and that there was, it didn't have to be honky tonk. It didn't have to be hillbilly. 
There was an elegance to what she and Jim Reeves and Eddie Arnold and later Charlie Rich and folks like that to what they did. And that really was what I wanted to do. You know, Chris Christopherson, he said things like Dylan, but he said them in a way that made sense to my brain. He immediately went straight to my heart. And so those were the formula, you know, that cooked me up. Yeah. So you you grew up, you know, right down the road from Muscle Shoals and Florence, and that's just, you know, one of the great musical centers of the world. When did that start to dawn on you? When did you start to realize what you were living near? It wasn't until high school. Um, my parents weren't big R&B soul fans, and so those records weren't really around the house. When I got to high school and I figured out that I could carry a tune, which was news to me because I just sang in church and all the little old ladies would uh, ooh and all, and I thought, you know, you know I'm, I, I can carry a tune. And, but then once I sang around my friends and I was immediately the lead singer in our band, I started wearing out their records and realized, oh, okay, I'm a drummer. Um, his dad plays in a, in a bar on the state line. Well, why are there bars on the state line? So I was learning about the fact that Lauderdale County, where I live now, Florence, uh, was dry up until early 80s, I believe. So all down the state line of Tennessee and Alabama is juke joints that you know everybody from Alabama would go up because it was the only place they could get a drink. And they were pretty rough. And so that's where I started playing. And I would meet folks and they'd be like, oh, God, you know who that is? That's, you know, that's David Hood. Who the hell's David Hood? You know, he played on. And then, you know, they list off all the stuff that the Swampers had done. And I started realizing, hang on, these guys are from 20 miles away. And I'd learn every day exponentially. Oh, yeah, that was cut in Muscle Shoals. Yeah, that was cut in Muscle Shoals. See that guy over there? He played on this, 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 and this. See that guy? He wrote this, this. And it blew my mind. You know, this is pre-internet, so there was no way I was going to get this info until I got out into the world and off that farm. But then at some point, you just think, oh, well, that's how all big cities are. You know, that's how all us country guys find out when we move to town that it was a while before I realized how unique Muscle Shoals was and how lucky I was to live on the outskirts of it. But also, in order to get a club gig, you had to beat out people like that. Right. <laughs> if you wanted to be the singer, then Wayne Chaney or uh, Travis Womack, all these guys were playing those same clubs, and they'd all had hits. You know, it's like, golly, this is... But I found out really quick that they there was little to no competition. It was all uh, a brother and sisterhood that everybody helped each other out. And, hey, come sit in, man. You sing? All right. What, what do you know? I know Credence. Every band knew Credence. So, all right, cool. Let's do Green River. Jump up here. Who were some of those artists who saw something in you early and really gave you a hand up? Jimmy Johnson was the first, and that was through a mutual friend. And 
he told me, he said, I, I know Jimmy, and Jimmy's still got an office at Muscle Shoals Sound. Would you like to meet him? And when he first mentioned him, I didn't know who the hell he was. And on the drive, he told me, well, you know, he, he played on Little Richard Records and Aretha Records, and I'm just, like, getting more and more nervous the whole time he's talking. He said, yeah, and he, he produced Leonard Skinner, and, and he was uh, engineering and when Rolling Stones were there doing brown sugar, and I'm just, like, about to throw up at this point. <laughs> and so we got there, and he's the sweetest most humble. He treated me like I was a star. I was nobody from nowhere and just playing bar gigs on the state line. And he heard me sing and um, took me around the entire studio, showed me where, you know, Joe Cocker sat right there. And Rod Stewart was scared to come in the room and sing because he was nervous to play with us because we had played with Wilson Pickett and he didn't think he was, he would measure up that kind of, and I'm a kid, you know, and and then I, I also met uh, Spooner Oldham. I met Spooner on a daggone uh, creek bank next to a field where there was a flatbed trailer and a bunch of us bands were playing. There was a makeshift PA. Well, Spooner was there just hanging out. He was helping out with a band called Farmer that he was a fan of. And I, and I met him, and I just thought he was some stoned old guy that wandered off, you know, out of the hills and talked to him for a while. And he was telling me, he's like, man, I, re I really like your singing, man. That's really good. I'd love to hang out. May we write a song sometime? I'm like, yeah, sure, dude, whatever. And, and he walks away, and he's got on a Neil Young jacket. I'm like, well, that's cool. He, he's a Neil Young fan. That's all right. Turned out he had it because he'd been playing with Neil Young on tour. And so <laughs> buddies came over and they were like, dude, what was Spooner talking to you about? And I told him, I was like, who is that guy? And they said, well, he played with Bob Dylan. He wrote, I'm your puppet. And he's a rock and roll hall of famer. And, uh, and again, I wanted to throw up and, the, and both of them treated me the same way. I met David Hood exact same thing uh and i realized that's that's what that that's what makes this place unique is that camaraderie and that we we actually cheer for each other we know that it's going to raise all ships you know and so um when you're when your heroes give you that foundation you know we keep paying it forward and keep paying it forward. And again, the more I traveled, the more I realized that was not the case in any other, in any other town. When did you start to realize that this music thing might be a career for you? I don't think I did until college. I knew it was fun, and we all had the dream of the the executive coming and slapping a contract on the back of the car, you know, I'm going to make you rich. And we had that dream, but Nashville couldn't have been more, farther away, even though it was an hour and a half from Loretta. I wasn't going anywhere. I was playing bar gigs, and I thought, man, I'm so great that they're going to hear about me, and they're going to come running. And 
That did not happen. So after about five years playing bars, I decided that it's not working. I'm going to go back to college. And when I did, within six months, I had procured a publishing contract. And so I did that for about 12 years, writing songs. I'm like everybody else that sang in their you know, their hairbrush in the mirror and dreamed of being on the Grammys, but I never really thought that it would happen. And so, um, just very fortunate. So you ended up with the, the civil wars mm-hmm. and y'all had a, a hit Barton hollow that really just kind of blew up in a massive way. What was that like for, this kid from Loretta, Tennessee to all of a sudden be on that world stage and standing at the Grammys and yeah. Um, you know, it was ridiculous at no point. Did it feel real? And it always felt like somebody was going to come in and be like, we got you. (laughs) You're still a hick from Loretta and we don't care about you or your music. And a lot of that was because, I wasn't 19 or 20 and, and, uh, full of vinegar and, and thinking that I was the best thing since last bread. When I was that age, I did. I, I had a lot of confidence in my singing cause I was from a small town and I was one of the few people that could, could sing. And so I got cocky and then I got to the shoals and realized, Oh God, you know, I'm nothing. And I got a lot of work to do and a lot of learning to do. And then when I started writing songs in the Nashville market and meeting songwriters that couldn't get record deals that were better than I was and people that were writing songs way better, you know, so I, I slogged through that for a long time and I, I ended up getting a record deal as a solo artist and that failed because the label didn't put the record out, um, because of a big merger that happened and it just got shelved. So I walked into the civil wars with kind of a, a bit of a chip on my shoulder that I'm just going to do things my way. Cause doing it everybody else's way has not worked. Never expecting that it would be popular. Never thought I'd be lying. If, if I told you that I knew that we had something, everything that happened was like, where y'all been? You know, I've been <laughs> beating on this door in years but then once that door opened, golly, man, I mean, part of the problem for me was I, I, I wouldn't say no to anything because I'd been begging for opportunities for so long. And so it was just, yeah, what do you got? Yeah, I'll do that. Just tell me where to stand. I will give everything I've got every time I do it. And I did. And I'm, and I'm proud of that. You know, there's, I realized that's the only way those things work is if you put the time in, it's not, you can't just be talented. You can't just have the right song. It's all encompassing and you really have to give everything to it. And, and to be frank, I gave too much to it. I, I gave all of my time to it until, you know, my, my priorities were screwed up and I barely knew my family and, well, you were on the road pretty much nonstop for years, right? Yeah. My manager figured up one year, maybe 2011, we were home 40 days. 
And I have a, I have a sneaking suspicion that a lot of those 40 days I was in Nashville, you know, he was just figuring what we, when we were on the road and that's what you have to do. You know, if you want to achieve those kind of levels, that's what you have to do. And, and I'm glad I did it. And I, now I know it, but that's, that's not what drives me anymore. crazy time right now we're all dealing with this virus this is we're still in april here and we're all trying to stay healthy and safe and you were telling me earlier about a collaboration that you had with roseanne cash uh and and a song that y'all did uh that that seems awfully relevant right now and i'm just wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that the song is called we're all in this together now and as on the nose as that probably sounds we wrote it a year ago when no one knew anything about this virus and and pandemic was a word you just used to talk about the black plague or spanish flu or whatever you know it's just something we didn't think about and we wrote it about different times in different times and the song i didn't end up using it for my record she didn't either and we both loved it but it just hadn't had its moment yet and then this happens. And I got to thinking about it. We, we as a label here at Single Lock Records, we always start a label here. And we had a meeting, a very socially distant meeting. Um, and Reed Watson said, what do we have in our catalog, either that's been released or hasn't been released, but it's appropriate. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks, that song. And I went back and listened to it, and it was eerie. It's, it's so prescient. It's like, it's weird. I've never been a part of that before where I wrote something and then way down the road is like, this was meant for this moment. I haven't done that. So, uh, I called Roseanne and I said, I think we have our moment for this song. Will you sing on it? And I had already done a guitar vocal a year ago. And she said, I thought you'd never ask. So hold tight the sword, hold fast the sail, cause we might be taken down. It's a lonely world, but it's our only world, and we're all in this together now. You know, a lot of your songs have a, a darkness to them, but they do make you feel good. And I think especially on, on the hurting kind and just seems like a very appropriate antidote to these times. Thank you very much. I, I don't try to bum people out. Um, I was always drawn to dark songs. I was always drawn to songs that made me feel something. It didn't necessarily have to be sad songs, but they made me feel something. And that's what I want to do. My dad would always, when we'd be in the truck, every once in a while he'd be like, hey, listen to this one. And I'd sit up and I'd, and every time it'd be a, it'd be dark. 
it'd be Long Black Veil or it'd be Sunday Morning Coming Down. And I still gravitate toward those. I need songs to make me feel something or I know they won't make anybody else feel anything. You know, I, I tend to write about the sun when it's raining, but I choose to be optimistic about this. Some of the happiest music is going to come out of this. You're longing for the sun. You're longing for happiness and all your friends and all your loved ones. And you're longing to play shows and to get back to work and get away from your kids, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) Uh, I hope people are writing about that, you know, looking at the bright side of things, what have been some of the positive moments for you in this quarantine? Obviously time, time with my family and time to, um, stop and reevaluate and reprioritize and, and clean out my closets literally and figuratively, you know, clean out the attic, you know, literally and figuratively. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm emotionally in a pretty good place. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a little, you know, cabin fever, you know, as we've got three kids and two dogs and two guinea pigs and a cat. And that's a full uh, house. <laughs> it's getting, it's getting a little claustrophobic <laughs> and they're all very active. And so they're pinned up in the house and we're doing all we can to stave off, um, going crazy. But, it's, it's two two sides of this. One, I really appreciate being able to get out in front of people and play songs. And uh, I think we all took that for granted for a while. But number two, I think people are really appreciative that they could go to shows and that they could go and listen to someone sing and they could be with other people that feel the same things they do, kindred spirits and listen to sad songs or happy songs and go to a club and dance or go sit in a chair and cry. I hope that people don't take live music and music in general and musicians for granted and appreciate that just streaming music isn't enough to really get the full benefits of what music can do for you emotionally and physically. Um, we shall see. Yeah, amen to that. Well, John Paul White, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and uh, thank you for being on Biscuits and Jam. My pleasure. I talked about a lot of things today I've never talked about. This is fun. (laughs) Well, hopefully you can uh, come back sometime. I'll always come back for Biscuits. (laughs) Thanks for listening to my conversation with John Paul White. Proceeds from downloads of his duet with Roseanne Cash, We're All in This Together Now, are going to the Music Health Alliance to assist families dealing with COVID-19. John Paul's latest album, The Hurting Kind, is available wherever you get music and from johnpaulwhite.com. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama, and this podcast was produced and edited in Nashville, Tennessee. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or telling your friends about the program. You can find us online at southernliving.com and subscribe to our print publication by searching for Southern Living at www.magazine.store. Biscuits and Jam is produced by Heather Morgan Schott, Chrissy Tiglius, and me, Sid Evans, for Southern Living. 
Thanks also to Ann Kane, Jim Hankey, Eliza Lambert, and Rachel King at Pod People. Join me next week for our final episode of the season with the legendary Gladys Knight. See you then for more Biscuits and Jam. Bye.